Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. And then there's two other areas of enforcement that I wanted to just note. One is there've been a couple of interesting cases of social media influencers failing to properly disclose paid endorsements. And this Today we have back the creators of Miller and Chevalier's Executives at Risk Client Alert. We have Lauren Briggerman, Ian Herbert, and Catherine Pappas. They discuss developments in white collar enforcement actions that impact executives and the defenses of them. Uh, Cases involving the DOJ, the FTC, the SEC, and other agencies. It's a fascinating look at the world of executives and some of the civil and criminal risks they face going forward. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Before we get to them, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and I'm thrilled today to have three colleagues from Miller & Chevalier who have been on before because of their most excellent newsletter, Client Alert, etc., on executives at risk. So I've got Lauren Briggerman, Catherine Pappas, and Ian Herbert. Gents, thanks again, and welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having thanks, Tom. us. So can I ask you to tell our audience once again your practice areas and specialties, starting with you, Lauren. Sure. So I am a member in our litigation department and our white-collar practice group, and I specialize in government and internal investigations with a particular focus on cartel or criminal antitrust investigations. Catherine? I'm also a a member in the firm's litigation group and white-collar practice group. I also work on investigations with a focus on allegations of fraud, corruption, and human resources violations like bullying and harassment. Ian. Yeah, and I I also focused on government investigations in our white collar group and my focus on financial crimes broadly. So some bribery, money laundering, 
antitrust and tax fraud? I want to start with the Department of Justice, uh, because certainly in the FCPA slash greater compliance world, the first quarter of 2023 was as memorable with announcements as any quarter I can recall. But I want to focus on information that came out in January, which is changes to corporate enforcement policy. I'd like to ask you your view of those changes and really end with the, and explore the question of, do you really think this moves the needle on self-disclosure? So, who wants to take on the DOJ and changes to the CEP? I'll do that. This is Catherine. So I think on on the ultimate question of whether this moves the needle on self-disclosure, I think companies are going to want to see how the new policy actually works in practice because it's building on a lot of existing guidance. The policy, you know, continues to beat the drum for early voluntary self-disclosure while also emphasizing the importance of cooperation and remediation. And as part of that cooperation, putting an emphasis on sharing evidence related to the culpability of individuals. And so I think, you know, those priorities have the potential to create some tension between companies who, on the one hand, may be feeling a push or a rush to go in and self-disclose while an investigation is open, and individual employees who have their own potential liability to consider. So um, I guess to back up a second and, and quickly set the table, as you said, the new guidance was issued in January. It built on revisions that happened last year and the year before. It builds on the corporate enforcement policy that was existing, the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The new language on timeliness that we have requires disclosure, quote, at the earliest possible time, even when a company has not yet completed an internal investigation if it chooses to conduct one. But it also maintains some earlier language that talked about disclosure within a reasonably prompt time. So I think it's unclear kind of in practice how this earliest possible time is going to interact with that reasonably prompt time language as well. So I think, you know, to ensure full cooperation credit, they continue to emphasize sharing evidence, as I said, related to individuals. And so if you combine that requirement on individual culpability with the emphasis on earlier reporting, that potentially affects the interplay between employees and the company. You could have company interests diverging from employee interests earlier. You could have individual counsel coming in earlier. So I think those are also factors that, that could impact kind of how companies respond in terms of determining when, when to disclose. Catherine, let me ask you about the need for speed, both the need for speed and self-disclosure, but also with the double secret extra extraordinary cooperation. Um, Kenneth Poli, when announcing this, basically said, we'll know it when we see it. Uh, is he just channeling his inner Potter Stewart? Because there's really no definition around what was already a requirement for extraordinary cooperation? Or how would you advise a client on what is double extraordinary cooperation now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's kind of the tricky practical question, right? This is guidance that's been out there on on how quick companies are supposed to be moving. And I think this guidance really just doubles down on that idea that companies should be moving to disclose earlier than they have been. But I think companies are probably going to want to see some examples of of resolutions that kind of give that credit to really understand 
what the specifics are around what, you know, justifies that, that level of cooperation credit. Let me move to another topic that DOJ has talked to us quite a bit about recently, and that's clawbacks. Uh, and I don't really want to explore the philosophical underpinnings of clawbacks, but maybe more the practical steps of you guys are all in white-collar practice. You all do investigations. And really start with the question, can you start a clawback process during an investigation? Are there sort of negative implications? I'm a recovering trial lawyer, so I can think of a lot. But how would you advise a client on the clawback requirement or perhaps the clawback incentive that you see in the CEP and other DOJ announcements? Yeah, so I think the practicalities there are are interesting and layered, as you alluded to. So in March, the DOJ also announced their pilot program on clawbacks, which encourages at least the clawback process to start before the resolution. So that's really pushing you know, pushing for, for an earlier look at it. I think there's a potential barrier to practically accomplishing prompt remediation, which is valued under the corporate enforcement policy and other documents, and actually getting the clawback. You know, clawback efforts could be subject to litigation. That could be drawn out over a significant period of time, setting aside, you know, kind of strategic concerns about beginning that process earlier. And so that could exceed the resolution timeline. So I think, you know, the DOJ's pilot program acknowledges, I think, a little bit that practically clawbacks might not necessarily be completed prior to resolution. You know, if the company has implemented a program to clawback compensation from employees engaged in wrongdoing and, and some certain sort supervisors and has in good faith initiated the process to recoup compensation, a company could get a fine reduction of up to 100% of the amount of compensation that the company is attempting to claw back. And even where compensation is not successfully clawed back, a company could still reduce their fine by 25% of the amount of the attempted clawback. But I think, you know, it remains to be seen how that would work in practice. It doesn't accommodate for factors like the cost of litigation, so the cost of pursuing the clawback could exceed the amount of credit that you get in the reduction of the fine, and that could impact a company's decision as to whether or not, you know, it's worth it to pursue it. I think other factors, such as local law, taxes, whether and how the money was already taxed, those could all present challenges that companies would have to consider. And it's possible companies would decide that that those challenges outweigh the potential benefits. But I think at the same time, companies can be kind of proactive in putting in place policies that relate to clawback programs and compliance incentives to at least set themselves up better going forward rather than kind of addressing something once wrongdoing has come up and your policies haven't already been amended. Well, let me change the focus a little bit now to antitrust. Uh, I think one of the biggest changes, at least philosophically, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration has been in the area of antitrust. And we've now had a couple of years of antitrust. And I wanted to ask you guys, what have you seen around antitrust, particularly in the area of uh, wage fixing or no poach agreements that was of note to you and, and your team? Sure. Yeah, you're right. There has been a significant shift. The Biden administration has focused significantly on enforcing 
antitrust laws, but particularly in the area of labor markets. In their view, you know, they're there to protect the low-income wage earner, so they want the antitrust division to be enforcing the antitrust laws to protect workers. But unfortunately for the antitrust division, they've actually had a really poor track record of successfully prosecuting these new wage-fixing and no-poach cases criminally. For those of your listeners who aren't familiar, it used to be back in the day that the antitrust division would go after labor market collusion as a civil case. And then they changed their policy in 2016 and said that they were going to at least consider bringing criminal charges against companies and executives who engaged in either these wage-fixing agreements where companies agree as to what the wages would be, or what we call no-poach agreements. And those are where companies collude and agree not to hire each other's employees. And as a result of that policy change back in 2020, the Justice Department brought its first criminal charges. And since then, there have been many criminal charges, but the antitrust division has had a really poor track record in actually successfully prosecuting individuals and companies who've been indicted on these charges. Now, I've counted, I think, three individuals or companies who've gone to trial in recent months, and all of them have been acquitted on antitrust charges. There was one individual who was convicted on an obstruction of justice charge, but he was cleared of the antitrust charges. So it's really interesting. And most recently in March, there was a case up in the state of Maine where four home health care agency managers had been charged with wage fixing. And the jury very quickly acquitted all four of them. And I think they had a very compelling and sympathetic story. The individuals were former, they were Iraqi nationals who were former translators for the U.S. government in the Iraqi war. And there was also evidence that the wages that the healthcare workers were making actually had gone up instead of down. So the jury just didn't understand why this should be a criminal case. And I think going forward, the antitrust division is going to have a tough sell to juries in trying to actually convict these individuals. And then outside of the courtroom, the Justice Department, the antitrust division is not, frankly, used to going to trial all that much. They're used to individuals pleading guilty. Um, and they've had trouble there as well. There was a recent case where the manager of a healthcare staffing company agreed to something called a pretrial diversion agreement. And that resulted in no jail time and no guilty plea. And so that, it's hard for the antitrust division to kind of uh, uh, frame that as a victory in the labor collusion cases. So it remains to be seen where they're going. They've made it very clear they're going to continue to prosecute these cases, but they don't have a great track record right now. Lauren, uh, I've been really intrigued by these no poach cases. I come out of the in energy industry. And those were ubiquitous clauses in your employment. Now, they were limited time, scope, and ge geography, so there were some parameters around them. But the thing about these cases that you highlighted was the DOJ is not losing uh, from the judge on an issue of law. They're losing to the juries. And do you think these clauses have been around so long, people are just basically saying, why did this become illegal all of a sudden? Or is it, uh, you pointed out the compelling story of the Iraqis, but what about the, the 
factual arguments that the DOJ is losing on. Any Anything you're seeing in that? Yeah, I think the no-poach agreements are very interesting. I think that even though you're right, the judges have been ruling before trials in these cases that these are criminal cases. The government is able to put on their case as a criminal case. But then they're very difficult for a jury to understand. Technically, under the criminal standard, the Justice Department does not have to prove any sort of negative effect on workers. But as a practical matter, a jury, if they're going to convict someone of a crime, wants to see that someone's been hurt. And so I think when the government puts on evidence and you see, for example, in this most recent case that went to trial, that wages actually, this is a wage fixing case, but wages actually went up, for example, or there's no harm to a worker because he is able to go move around and work for a competitor company, then it's really hard for them to say that this should be a crime. So the antitrust division can say that they're going to continue to bring these cases and they will. And they're saying it's a victory because they have been winning on motions to dismiss and courts have been ruling that the criminal standard applies. But the reality is they're losing a trial. So it's hard to see that as a victory. And I do agree. I think people don't understand why this is illegal. I also think that the Justice Department hasn't educated people that they've made this policy change since 2016 that they are willing to go after this criminally. I think even lawyers at companies don't necessarily know that they need to train their HR people not to use no poach agreements or that they can be charged criminally by the government. Let me move now to the CFTC and non-compete agreements. And once again, very ubiquitous clauses in many, many industries is, and there's a movement by the CFTC to outright ban these. Where do you see that going and uh, potential litigation in those areas? Yeah, so this is the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and yes, they um, certainly are following the Biden administration's initiative to fully flex their enforcement muscles to really pursue any of the statutes under their jurisdiction um, in a way that they haven't in the past. And Lena Khan, who is the chair of the FTC, is very aggressive and believes that the FTC has a role in enforcing antitrust laws. So just to give your listeners and viewers more background, in January, the FTC proposed eliminating all non-compete agreements, basically proposed a new rule that would make a sweeping change to the laws and prohibit employers from imposing non-competes on employees and contractors. And there was a narrow exception that was limited for certain mergers and acquisitions, but generally speaking, um, they would want to ban all non-compete clauses. So I, I think the reality is, you know, the FTC has to go through the rulemaking process here. As I understand it, the, the comment period is closed. So they're gonna move forward with the rulemaking process. Even if this does become a rule and therefore Law, there's going to be substantial litigation challenging it. All that being said, even if this rule doesn't become, doesn't go into effect as Lena Khan proposed it, the FTC has shown that it's willing to challenge non-compete clauses that companies have in place. Just, a, I think it was a, a few days before the FTC announced the rule, the FTC announced a trio of settlement agreements with companies 
for purportedly entering into non-compete agreements that violate the Federal Trade Act because they harmed employees. And so the result of these settlement agreements was that the companies had to void the non-competes and not use them going forward. So even if this rule doesn't go into effect, you know, there are there's going to be litigation and companies really need to think twice about using non-compete agreements at all. And if they are going to use them to narrowly tailor them. And also companies also need to keep in mind that there are state laws, right? There are some states that already on the books bar non-competes. Like I think California and North Dakota are two states that do that. So it's definitely something that companies and executives need to think through moving forward. Uh, let me turn to one of my favorite topics, which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, and what have you guys seen there in terms of individual prosecutions? Yeah, I think there's there's a couple kind of worth discussing. It's interesting. They both arise out of indictments from August 2020 that we've only kind of more recently become aware of. So I think first, last November, a former Goldman Sachs executive was arrested in London um, and the indictment from August 2020 alleged his involvement in a scheme to bribe government officials in Ghana to help a Goldman Sachs client win a bid for an electrical power plant project. I think what's interesting and, and notable here is that the executive actually previously settled with the SEC coming on nearly two years ago. That settlement was in June 2021. And he agreed to pay disgorgement and prejudgment interest coming out of that totaling over $300,000. So it'll be an interesting one to watch where the SEC settlement kind of preceded any DOJ resolution by a significant period of time. I think the other one kind of worth talking about is in December, the president of New York-based NGO and his assistant pled guilty to conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA in connection with a scheme to bribe government officials in the Marshall Islands. Again, they were initially indicted in August 2020. They were arrested in Thailand in November 2020 and then extradited to the U.S. in September 2022. Um, so in February of this year, the assistant was sentenced to time served and in line with both her and the government sentencing submission, the, both recognized she had already been subjected to pretty brutal conditions while in Thai prison for 21 months. And the, the government also recognized her kind of relative level of culpability with her co-defendant. The president of the NGO is scheduled to be sentenced in May, so we'll also be watching that to see kind of what factors weigh into that sentencing. Let me turn to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, we had some major announcements from the SEC around insider trading, but what did you guys see, a particular note from the SEC? Yeah, so first on the, the policy front that you referenced there, Tom, in, in December of last year, the SEC adopted amendments to its 10b5-1 rule, which just for your listeners provides safe harbor for corporate insiders to buy and sell stock in the company as long as they do it according to pre-established trading plan and in good faith. And so it can be an affirmative defense for someone to make a trade if they can show that they set up a plan or a contract <clears throat> before they had material non-public information 
to, to settle, to sell or, or buy stock. Um, and it, there's just, there's really good reasons for this rule, right? It, if for somebody who is a CEO of a company who, uh, you know, wants to sell stock, that person is almost always going to have material non-public information. And so, you know, if you want to be able to allow executives to, uh, to make sales, what you do is you can set up a plan and uh, say, you know, in six months, I, I direct you to sell this. And so you don't have any material non-public information about what's going to happen in six months. Um, but there's been a lot of criticism recently because the, as 10b5-1 plans have gotten more widespread, there's concerns related in particular to uh, plans that uh, where, where people sell sort of shortly after they create the plan, which creates an impression that they're not, it's not being done in, in good faith. Or uh, one thing that's happened is people have set up multiple 10b5-1 plans and then have been, uh, they can just cancel uh, the, some of the, the plans that they don't want to, to use after you know, getting material non-public information, or at least that's, that's the concern. And so the SEC set up new conditions, passed the final rule with new conditions for 10b5-1, which included a cooling off period to address that first point. So prevents trading shortly after the adoption of a plan and then also restricts overlapping uh, trading plans, which, which is the second point. And then there's, there's also some disclosure requirements for the companies and it requires directors and officers to certify their lack of awareness in MNPI at the time they're creating the plan. So it's, a, it's an interesting development. 10b5-1 plans are all over the place and have been sort of an area of focus recently. And so this, we'll see sort of how these rules play out. Uh, you also asked about the enforcement perspective, right? right? So I think a couple things from an enforcement perspective. The SEC is certainly touting its enforcement actions against individuals. There was a, uh, their annual fiscal report from 2022 said that two thirds of the SEC standalone enforcement actions involved individuals. And going back to your discussion with Catherine, they're touting their clawbacks of bonuses from executives under SOX 304. Um, and then there's two other areas of enforcement that I wanted to just note. One is there've been a couple of interesting cases of social media influencers failing to properly disclose paid endorsements. And this sort of relates to the crypto space because uh, the view that cryptocurrency is a secure, you know, can be treated as a security. And so in October of last year, uh, Kim Kardashian settled charges saying that she was paid to promote crypto tokens. And uh, in her hashtag ad was not a sufficient disclose, disclosure to let people know that she was being paid for that endorsement. And then last month, former NBA player Paul Pierce was also settled a case and paid a penalty related to promotion of Ethereum. So you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of those, the, those promotions and, and non-disclosure cases. And I think sort of typically with high profile individuals and 
often around cryptocurrency just because of the way um, you know cryptocurrency is sort of and the, the enforcement around cryptocurrency is evolving. And then that's sort of the next, I mean, the only other piece I would just mention is uh, there's been sort of a lot more enforcement around cryptocurrency, not just from the SEC, but also the New York Attorney General. Um, and we saw earlier this year the, the first sentencing of an individual for insider trading related to cryptocurrency as well. Well, that really leads into my next topic, and I'm somewhat loath to ask about this topic because it changes almost daily, but that's FTX. What did you guys see, at least through the publication of the newsletter, Client Alert, around FTX that caught your interest? Yeah, so a, a couple of things. I, you know, I think most of the listeners will know basic background that Sam Bankman fried was uh, arraigned in December of last year after being extradited from the Bahamas. He's released on $250 million bond secured against his parents' property and is on electronic monitoring in his, in his parents' property. I think you know, two, two points I would make most interesting and most recent is that prosecutors filed, uh, at the end of March, filed additional charges against Sam Bankman-Fried related to foreign bribery. It accuses him of making or facilitating a $40 million payment to a Chinese official in 2021 to unfreeze about a billion dollars of assets that belong to his trading firm, Almeida Research. So that's probably the biggest development. I think one other smaller digression, but maybe interesting, is he, Sam Bankman-Fried has also been getting in a bunch of dust-ups with the court about his use of signal messages to contact witnesses, and then he, most recently, I think, he, um, he got in trouble for using a VPN for, uh, I guess, to watch the Super Bowl, is what he said. And so the prosecutors in the court are concerned that he, that the VPN is a way to sort of get around, you know, it's sort of like the encrypted messaging systems, uh, where he's, you know, potentially they're concerned that he would be reaching out to witnesses in a way that's untraceable, but he's saying he's just watching the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, it was a heck of a game this year, so maybe he enjoyed himself. <laughs> we also had some really interesting developments out of the Delaware Court of Chancery. Um, so the McDonald's case, who wants to tell us about why McDonald's is important for execs? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that as well. This is from January the the Delaware Court of Chancery was reviewing a shareholder derivative suit against the chief people officer for McDonald's that alleged that he breached fiduciary duties by ignoring red flags regarding sexual misconduct in the company. And he moved to dismiss, arguing that uh, only directors, not officers, had a duty of oversight. And the court disagreed for the first time. I think directors have had a duty of oversight since 1996, but it has not been officially extended to officers like the chief, chief people officer. And so the court said that sort of all the same rationale that applies to directors can apply to, to officers. I think there's a, a real question about impact, right? It certainly will expand duty of oversight cases, and I think will include 
you know, more officers in those duty of oversight cases. But assuming the, the case law from, uh, from directors, you know, stays the same, which I think it prob probably will, the, the plaintiff has to argue that, or has to show that the director utterly failed to implement reporting systems or consciously failed to monitor or oversee the reporting systems. And so there really is a showing of bad faith. And so that, that's required for, for a duty of oversight claim. And so I think remains to be seen sort of how much it'll, it'll pick back up. But I, th I think it's certainly important for companies and, and specifically for officers of companies who haven't had to, to worry about that as much. I'm going to preface the next topic with we're going to talk about something from the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, but we had conversations that I have never seen involving the U.S. Sentencing Commission and proposed changes to the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines. So what did you guys see and hear, and why is this significant? Yeah, so the, the, sentence, the, the big change, or I think there's a couple of big changes, but I think one of the big court change, at least, was in November, the Third Circuit ordered uh, the resentencing of a defendant because it said that it was inappropriate to apply a loss enhancement to the sentencing calculation when there was no actual loss. That, I, in some ways, that seems obvious, but the, the rule previously had been that the loss enhancement was governed by actual loss or intended loss. And so in cases where there was no actual loss, but there was, you know, significant, you know, the defendant intended significant loss, that you were seeing sort of very high sentence, sentences for, for people in those, in those cases. And I think it's particularly significant for white-collar defendants uh, whose sentences are generally driven by the loss ca calculation, um, and, you know, you get sort of significant enhancements for cases based on loss. And so sentences have, I think, gotten a little bit out of line with where they used to be based on loss amounts and specifically intended loss. And then the, the other one is that the Sentencing Commission sort of for the first time, and this is it just recently, for the first time in, in years, has made some changes uh, to the sentencing guidelines, which I think will go into effect if Congress doesn't step, you know, say otherwise. And there are sort of a bunch of changes, but you know, in terms of the debate, one of the things I thought was interesting was a discussion about whether you could use acquitted conduct for a sentencing to sentence an individual. And on that one, at least, the Sentencing Commission punted and and said that they weren't at this point going to make a decision about whether it was appropriate to use acquitted conduct for sentencing. So I think, you know, we'll see on, on that piece down the road. Well, guys, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. We're going to link to your report uh, in our show notes. I wanted to thank you guys once again for doing the report because it's always a great review for people like me. And I hope we can you know, check in the next time you issue one. So thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Great, great to talk great to you. Great to talk. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. 
If you'd like to be a guest on the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm always looking for folks. Or if you'd like to be on one of my other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report, of course, is the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report, and it's a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.